Amen. Thanks, Aaron. Worship team, I appreciate you guys coming uh, in the midst of a crisis. Lauren, our pianist, asked, what do, you, do you want us to sit in the audience and like nod our heads while you preach, even though no one's here? I said, sure, whatever you, you want to do. So this is just a, a time for us to be together in worship and in God's word, even though we're not physically present. Thank you for your prayers. Thank you for tuning in. I pray that you were able to worship during those songs as we sing about the goodness of the cross and the wonderful cross, even as terrible and tragic as it was, that it achieved the most glorious victory for us as God's people. Thank you. Uh, tech team, too, to our sound guys and our TV crew who are putting this out on broadcast television. Thank you um, for just making this happen today. It took a, a lot of work, and so I appreciate our leadership today and for the the, the last hour, I hope you were able to see our Facebook Live Sunday School class. I know another class that met on Zoom today online. I think the Lord is just doing something great already. I'm excited to see uh, how he's going to move in the midst of a crisis that we find ourselves in like today. We're going to continue our series in Lent. Lent's kind of a thing that Baptists have not historically done, and it kind of uh, concerns some traditional Baptists, but I assure you, don't panic. Lent is something that is not only very historically orthodox and a part of our Christian heritage and tradition, it also finds its roots in Scripture. What we're going to do is have a season of fasting, confession, and repentance. And in doing so, we prepare our hearts for the glorious Resurrection Sunday. This is a season for us to step back from the craziness of our world. And it is crazy. I don't have to tell you that these days. And the days begin to lengthen, like I said. That's where the word Lent comes from. As the days lengthen, we're able to step back and, and reevaluate where we are in life, spiritually, physically, socially, all of those things. You know, this season is an exciting time because we see new life beginning to spring up from the ground physically around us. As we pulled into my driveway a couple days ago, my oldest son said, Dad, look how green those bushes are. I said, yeah, they're really green. He said, no, they're like lime green. They are so green. I said, yeah, those are the new buds. That's the new growth on those bushes. Springtime reminds us that our God is in the business of bringing dead things to life. That that's what he does. That's what the gospel is all about. It's important to remember that during Lent as we anticipate the resurrection of the Son of God. That's the centerpiece of our faith. That's the most important part of what it means to be a Christian. So as our community and as our nation and as our world continue to, to grapple with the, the coronavirus effects, I think it's important for us to think about what the Christian church is doing during this season of Lent. Here we are in a season of reflection, and we find ourselves in a national crisis. I saw a post recently on social media that said, so you thought you weren't giving up anything for Lent, huh? <laughs> Apparently, some people are giving up toilet paper for Lent, and some people are giving up uh, frozen goods. My wife said there was nothing left at Trader Joe's in the frozen goods section. Apparently, Doug has it all. Uh, <laughs> we need to call the Arnolds if you need something. It's time during Lent, to realign our focus, because we all are giving up something during this season, whether you planned on it or not. It's time to reevaluate what matters most. 
It's time to realign the trajectory of our lives with the trajectory of God, with our purposes, with his purposes during Lent. And realignment doesn't just happen. You don't fall into alignment. It takes some intentionality, and sometimes it takes some force to get back into realignment. I was at the YMCA last week, and I saw a technician who came to one of the treadmills near me and had to fix it. Apparently, the belt had gotten out of alignment. That's dangerous. So he popped the cover off of the front of it, and he had some tools, and he was digging around in there, and he closed the cover up, and he got on the treadmill, and he turned it on, and he started walking, and then he grabbed both rails, and he jumped up with two feet, and he dug his heels in as hard as he could onto the belt. I thought he was going to break the machine. Then he did it again, and then the third time he jumped and dug his heels in, uh, he started walking again normally, and he kind of looked around and nodded his head like, that did the trick. Realignment sometimes feels like someone jumping up and down on our lives, digging their heels in onto our lives. Sometimes a crisis jolts us back to reality where we see things as they actually are, not as we would prefer them to be. A crisis just might force us to step back and to take stock of what really matters, what our priorities are. A crisis forces us to reevaluate where our, our, our priorities are and what we value as most important to us in our lives. True alignment usually takes some kind of measure that we normally would not apply to our own lives otherwise. It's some force that acts on us that we would not normally invite upon ourselves. That's why the language of Lent is full of these kind of words that are not very popular in our culture. Words like confession, fasting, repentance, words like sin and temptation. Last week we talked about repentance, about how repentance is really like realizing that you're trying to score on the wrong goal and you really need to turn around and go back towards the right goal and help your team out. It's amazing to me, speaking of confession, by the way, how many of our church members confessed to me that they'd actually done that in real life. You know who you are, you people watching who scored on the wrong goal. But today we're going to talk about temptation. We're going to talk about temptation and sin and how it really affects our lives in deep and indelible ways, but we're going to talk about how we can eventually overcome temptation and sin today. You know, the thing about these unpopular words that we talk about during Lent is that if we avoid them, like our culture tells us to, then we're never going to get our lives back realigned. If we pretend like everything's fine and keep rolling along, we will not end up on God's trajectory. These are the necessary steps that bring us back into alignment, the rhythms of grace that flow freely from the heart of God himself to us as children. So our text for today comes from Matthew chapter 4, maybe a familiar text to you if you grew up in church. Uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 11, and Normally at our church, we stand when the word of God is read. So I'd ask you worship team to stand and maybe at home, maybe it's super awkward for you to get off the couch, but I would ask you to stand in honor of the word of God where you are. I'm smiling just imagining you standing at home right now, but 
Hear now the word of the Lord. Nothing else I say is as important as this because this is God's word. Matthew chapter four, verses one to 11. Then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may have a seat. You know, driving in Nashville can be treacherous these days. It was eerie. I was talking to someone else here this morning about how on my commute today from my home to here, how Green Hills was really empty. It felt like a ghost town. Because normally it's bumper to bumper on Hillsborough Road, and every time I drive that corridor of, of Green Hills, I, I, I tense up a little bit. I get my hands a little tighter on the wheel. I start to sweat a little bit, because I know it's kind of a free-for-all out there. And inevitably, some person, I won't disparage them, some person child of God, I'm sure, will come and cut me off, will dart in and try to get around traffic and endanger my life or my children's lives. And the initial thought that comes to my head is not a very Christian one. I'm tempted to say something that is not very nice. I'm tempted to say something that is angry. I want to say, you Maniac, what are you doing? Learn to drive. You're going to hurt somebody. Those are the nicest things that I, I those are the things that really I want to say here. <laughs> Driving with my wife in the car, my sweet wife, has helped me temper that some. Driving with my kids has also helped me temper it, especially when you hear them say things like that. Where do they learn that from? Oh, right. But I, it's something I struggle with. My Anger is a, a temptation to let it bubble over into what I say or do. I'm always tempted to let my emotions get the best of me. You know, we all struggle with various temptations. Some of you may say, that's crazy, Nathan. I don't struggle with anger at all. Great, good for you. But we all struggle with something. We all have these sins that are, are particular weaknesses, Maybe for you, it's overeating. Maybe it's undereating. Maybe for you, it's anger like me, and your mouth just gets you in trouble all the time like mine does. Maybe you're tempted to lust, to lie or cheat or steal at work or in your business or at home. 
Maybe you're tempted just to sit back and not say anything when you see injustice happen in your world. Maybe you're tempted when no one's around. Maybe you say to yourself, this won't affect anybody. No one will know. It's not true, but we believe those things. Maybe right now, as I name these things, you're tempted to pride, and you say, yeah, those people that do those things are terrible people. <laughs> That's a temptation to pride. You know, today, as we dive into this text from Matthew 4 about the temptations of Jesus, we're going to see two main things. First off, we're going to see how Jesus' victory over temptation proves his identity as the Son of God. You see that Satan said, if you are the Son of God, do these things. And Jesus said, that won't prove it. This will. He proves that he is the righteous, true, singular Son of God. And second, we're going to see how Jesus' victory over temptation serves as our model for victory over temptation. There's two verses in Hebrews that refer back to this text, telling us that because Jesus did this in Matthew chapter 4, 1 to 11, we too can have victory over sin and temptation in our lives. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18 says, because he himself has suffered when tempted, He's able, Christ is able, to help those who are being tempted. Thanks be to God. Because he's been through it, he can help us. And then Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest, our great high priest who intercedes for us in heaven. We don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who is in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. That's an important yet, isn't it? So before we go any further, I often hear people say things like, yeah, that was Jesus, though. I'm not Jesus. I'm not perfect. How can I relate to someone like that? How could someone who never thought, said, or did anything wrong possibly sympathize with me in my weakness? So many people in my office will say things like, yeah, pastor, I'm not like you. I've, I've done a lot of bad things in my life. I've, I've been divorced. I've been divorced three times. I've been arrested. I've struggled with addiction for most of my life. I've cheated on my taxes. I've stolen. I've had affairs. I've, whatever it is, I've heard all those things. And some people think because they've done those things that they are not like me or not like our worship team are not like anybody else who is a, a great, good Christian person. There are actually some people out there who think, I do have it all together. They think they are morally superior to those people who confess to those things I just named, those people who in a moment of vulnerability who say that they have struggled with these temptations and lost those battles. And those people who think, that is a terrible person. You're right. I can't believe you struggle with those sins. I've never struggled with those sins. I must be a much better person than you. Some people actually think that, but Jesus never does. Jesus never does this because Jesus understands what it means to be human. We need to understand that, yes, while Jesus was perfect and he was God, he was also fully human. The incarnation means that Jesus entered into 
our weakness. He put on the same frail and broken flesh that we all indwell on a daily basis. And therefore, he knows that no human has it all together, that all of us are facing this incredible weight of sin and temptation to sin every moment of every day. In Doug O'Donnell's commentary, he's got a great commentary, and I'm using a lot of his material today. He says that just because Jesus never gave in to a particular temptation that you or I always seem to give in to doesn't mean that Jesus never felt the tug of such a temptation. O'Donnell uses the example of, of tug of war. Tug of war, you have two teams, right? The, the, the losing team, when they start to realize that, that the battle's over, that, that they're going to lose, they end up letting go and dropping the rope. So who feels the tug more? Who stays on the rope longer? The winning team or the losing team? It's the winning team that knows just how strong that tug was, isn't it? Or think about weightlifters. I had a season of my life where I was into CrossFit. I don't do it anymore, obviously, but I was into competitions. I would, I would go. I even judged some. I competed in one. And, and you have these guys, some of these huge guys that would take a 300-pound bar and they would just lift it over their heads. It was amazing to see this, the strength that these, these, these big, muscular CrossFit guys had. But some guys, you know, they would get the bar about maybe to their shins or their knees maybe, and they'd realize they don't have it and they'd drop it. Who knows the full weight of that bar better? The person who gets it up to their knees and drops it or the one who gets it up to their shoulders and then eventually with one big thrust gets it over their head? The person who conquers knows the full weight of that object. Jesus knows the full weight of sin. He knows the heaviness of temptation. Those who resist temptation and win are those that feel it the most. So Jesus wasn't some spirit floating out in the wilderness, just kind of messing around with the devil. He was in the fight. He was sweating. He was bleeding. He could have fallen. He could have lost, but he didn't. He prevailed, and now he reigns as the undefeated champion of the world. And he shows us how to handle the fight. He shows us how to emerge victorious. So I'm going to keep using O'Donnell's points here. He makes five points. If you're the note-taking type, these are good things to jot down. Five key characteristics about Jesus's temptation that show us how to emerge from the fight victorious. Five key characteristics. The first one is that Jesus's temptation was God-ordained, not God-inflicted. It was God-ordained, but not God-inflicted. That's an important distinction to make about temptation. Look at verse 1 again. Notice in verse 1, there's two different times where it says, by. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Now notice the second, by, by the devil. By the Spirit, by the devil. What's going on here? Well, the fact that he was led by the Spirit means there was some divine purpose in what's going on here. This temptation was God-ordained because the Spirit of God led Jesus to the wilderness. God had a purpose for what's going on here. But once 
Jesus is out in the wilderness, Satan slithers onto the scene to tempt Jesus. So the temptation was God-ordained, but tempting doesn't come from God. Tempting comes from the accuser, from the liar. That's consistent with Scripture, right? James chapter 1, verse 3 says, Let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Just like in the story of Job, God allows his servant to be tested by the devil. You know the story of Job. God didn't inflict that on Job, but he allowed Satan to tempt and test Job. The word in Greek for tempt also means to test. It means to attempt, to try something. We still have that kind of use in English, don't we? These are the times that try men's souls. That seems applicable for our situation in a national crisis and a global crisis today. Temptation tries our souls ultimately for our good because it's God-ordained. Remember that Jesus is tested here for our good and for his good. He's tested. Are you really the son of God? Will you faithfully execute God's plan? Will you play your part in God's mission to rescue this world? Here's the lesson for us. Just because you're a follower of Jesus doesn't mean everything is going to be easy in your world. You will go through trials. In this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. There will be trying situations, crises, even global pandemics that God will use to lovingly shape us into the people that he has called us to be. I don't want to dismiss the pain and the death and the grief that is occurring right now, but I have to believe Romans 8.28 says all things somehow work together. Just because you and I can't see a purpose in it doesn't mean there isn't one. All things work together for the good of those who love Jesus Christ and are called according to his purpose. The Bible talks about the refiner's fire that purifies gold and makes it beautiful and makes it worthy. The Christian life is, is not the easiest life. Any preacher who's told you that is, is incorrect, but it is the best life. It is the best life. It will include trials, but they are all meant for our good. I believe that ultimately, somehow. Will you accept the God-ordained trials of your life, trusting that they will turn out for your good, or will you blame God for the temptations that are really the work of the enemy? Second characteristic of Jesus' temptation that we see here is that Jesus was tempted when his flesh was the weakest. Verse 1 says Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And verse 2 says after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Fully man, he was hungry. Verse 3 says, then the tempter came. Man, when I'm stressed, when I'm hungry, when I'm physically, emotionally, spiritually exhausted, my anger level is always about to boil over. When the adrenaline of ministry has worn off, it's then that I'm short with my wife. It's then that I'm harsh with my children or my coworkers. You know, there's certain times when our three-year-old hasn't 
napped well or hasn't eaten well or he's not feeling well. And I'll come home and my wife will warn me, just so you know, the baby, as he's known in our house, he's not a baby, he's three now, but the baby is volatile. The baby, baby is volatile. Be careful. And I have to kind of tiptoe and handle him with kid gloves because there are those seasons when we're all volatile. It's at those moments when Satan comes to us to tempt us. We need to be aware of our weaknesses and acknowledge when we're spent so that we may hear the Lord say in those moments what he said to the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9 and 10. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. The third characteristic we notice about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness is that it was unique yet universal. We know how unique this is. Jesus is in the wilderness. I don't go to the wilderness maybe once every couple of years. I'm not tempted there. Also, he was tempted by a physical manifestation of Satan. I've never encountered a physical, clear manifestation of the enemy. But the things that Satan tempted Jesus to do weren't a temptation for me either. He was tempted as the son of God. He was daring Jesus to grab the crown while ignoring the cross. The father had a plan to exalt the son, but only after the son had endured the agony of the cross. The depths that Jesus would go to would equal the heights to which he would be raised. But the, temper, the tempter tempts him to take the shortcut. Look at verse three and four. If you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. William Barclay says in his commentary that Jesus was tempted here to remove the symptoms without removing the disease. That seems like an apt analogy today. Our problem isn't that we don't have enough bread or milk or frozen goods or toilet paper. It's that we don't even know what we really need. Our sickness isn't from lack of bread. Our sickness is from lack of being right with God. That's why Jesus would say later, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. We have a spiritual need that's vastly more important than any physical need. There's more to life than what's visible and edible, tangible and collectible, bankable or investable. O'Donnell says that to die hungry with the gospel in your heart is to die with the hope of everlasting life. But to die with your mouth stuffed, your belly filled, but your heart cold to the gospel is to die everlastingly. Better to die with an empty belly and a full soul than with an empty soul and a full belly. And how was Christ's temptation universal? Well, it, aren't we all tempted to gra grab the crown without the cross? Aren't we all tempted to take the shortcut? Aren't we all tempted to elevate the physical and material things of this world over the spiritual things of this world? Aren't we all tempted to think that the Father's plan doesn't make a lot of sense and that we probably could do better on our own? Jesus' temptations were unique as the Son of God, but they are universal and that we all experience these temptations from the enemy. The fourth characteristic of Jesus' temptation is that he resisted with the word of God. 
The early church father Jerome said that Jesus breaks the false arrows of the devil drawn from the scriptures upon the true shields of the scriptures. Satan tried to twist God's word and use them to tempt Jesus, but Jesus used scripture, the true shield of scripture, to extinguish the flaming arrows of the enemy. All day long, we're inundated with the lies of the enemy. The word Satan means the liar, the deceiver. He whispers in our ear all day long, you're a failure, you don't matter, no one loves you. But notice how Satan doesn't use the obvious temptations with Jesus. Go for this cool, sinful thing. Instead, he toys with and he twists the promises of God in each of these temptations. He tries to take something good and pervert it into something that would be sinful and destructive, ultimately. But with each false arrow, Jesus is able to defend against it with the shield of God's word. It is written. It is written. It is written, he says. Do you really believe what Jesus says here? That man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that leads us to our last characteristic of Jesus' temptation. It was tough, but temporary. Verses 10 and 11, read those again. Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it's written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. God's grace is that temptation is not our ongoing, constant reality. I said earlier in the message that we're tempted every minute. That's not true. Temptation comes in, in waves, in certain moments or seasons of our life, but it doesn't last forever. Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. We'll close with this beautiful promise. No temptation has overtaken you that isn't common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. There's three promises in this one verse. First, there's no temptation that's not common to everyone. Don't think that you're the only one who's going through what you're going through or struggling what you're up against. Second, there's no temptation that's beyond your ability to resist it with God's help. Don't say, well, I couldn't help it. Yes, you could with the Lord's help. Third, there's no temptation from which God does not provide a way of escape. I've read it said before, if you say no, the devil will go. That's a promise in Scripture. Temptation, testing, trials that we go through, they are tough, yes, but they're not forever. If you give the devil an inch, he'll take a mile. Remember that sin always takes you further than you wanted to go, makes you pay more than you wanted to pay, and makes you stay longer than you wanted to stay. The Bible says that if we will resist the devil, he will flee from us. If you've been taking notes at home, again, five characteristics here of Jesus' temptation. It was God-ordained, not God-inflicted. It was when his flesh was at its weakest. It was unique, yet universal. He resisted with the word of God. And finally, it was tough, but temporary. Our Lord Jesus was tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. We have to learn to, to cling to him, to look to his perfect example, 
for how we can emerge from the fight victorious. Sin, we know sin will ruin our lives. We know that our enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy us. And he will do that through sin if we will allow him to. But we learn to cling to Christ that we might, by his grace and for his glory, win the victory. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this example we have in Scripture of how we can emerge from the, the ring when we are in the fight with our enemy, we can emerge victorious. God, we thank you that we always have a way out and that our reality is not always to be in temptation, but those moments come in seasons. And we know that ultimately you may ordain the testing and the trials that we go through, but you do not inflict them. You are not a mean, cruel God that you lovingly allow us to endure them in order to refine us as gold. Help us to remember that all things work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purpose. Even when we don't understand it, we don't see that you have a purpose in it. It's not always obvious. In fact, it rarely is. Help us to trust that you remain good and you remain on your throne. In the midst of a global pandemic, God, may we trust that you are somehow going to work good from this bad situation, and may you use us to do it. We pray these things in the powerful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.